Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. We'll be continuing in Genesis, reading from chapters 11, verse 27, through to chapter 12, verse 9. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in awe of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Izcah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Or of of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as, the, as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Then he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Faithful God, thank you for honouring your every promise to restore this world through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to trust your every promise and obey your every word through Jesus' strength. Amen. It really matters whom you trust, doesn't it? It really matters who you trust. It could be in marriage, it could be in friendship or at work, but we all know, don't we, that trust, it forms the basis of any healthy relationship. Uh, in my church over the last uh, five weeks, I've uh, officiated three weddings. Uh, by the last one, which was on Friday, I had to push myself to look engaged and happy. Um, which was really awkward because the photos from the second wedding came out and I just looked grumpy in all of them. Um, But 14 weddings uh, so far over three years, not too bad. But, you know, I I walk with couples as they plan their weddings and there's so much effort put into everything. The seating plan, the flowers, uh, the venue. But for all the beauty that's there in a wedding, do you know what's the most important part of it? It's the vows. It's the promise. In fact, you could strip away everything else away from that wedding, and as long as you have that promise, that's what really matters. 
It really matters whom you trust. Promises matter. But isn't it also the case that when trust is lost, that's when relationships really fail? Just think about the friend uh, who promises to keep your secret safe, only to gossip and then break that trust. And if you've had that happen to you, you'll know what you do next, right? What do we say? We say, words are cheap. Promises are empty. I'll never trust that person again. And if that happens to us enough times, we'll say to ourselves, no, the only person I can trust is me. Because a promise is only as reliable as the promise maker. And all of us know from bitter experience that people are far from reliable. But let me ask this question. What if? What if God made you a promise? What if the God who spoke this world into motion made a rock-solid, ironclad, blood-sealed promise to you? See, you might not trust anyone else in this world. Gosh, you might not even trust yourself. But would you trust Him? Would you have faith in a promise that God makes? Would you trust that promise against all odds? You see, in Genesis 12, in the passage that was just read, we're going to see how one promise from God can change the entire world and how it can change your life. You see, this one promise, it it ties all of history together. It's like the scarlet cord that runs through every page of the Bible. It's the vow, right, that gives meaning to every moment of your life. In fact, this promise is so great that if you get it, I promise you, It'll change your life. It'll change your life. So here it is. What's that promise? God promises to you. He says, I promise to restore this world to everything it was meant to be. I promise to restore this world to everything it was ever meant to be. All the sin, all the pain, all the brokenness, all the hurt, all of it, gone. Depression disaster, disease and death, all of it will come to an end. Finally, it will be no more. What does God promise? I'm going to fix this world. I'm going to put it back together. I'm going to fix you. And I'll put you back together. It's a beautiful promise. It's a promise that can be ours today. You see, before we look at that promise, I want you to look at the problem first. I want us to look at this story, which is why we started in chapter 11, to see the problem. And that's what we're looking at first, the problem from uh, chapter 11, verse 27 to 32. You know, I just said before um, at my church down in Melbourne, I've got this wonderful privilege of officiating weddings. I love it. 14 weddings in three years. Sorry to change the tone. I've never taken a funeral before. And to be honest, I'm not looking forward to it. But it's a certainty, isn't it? One day, I'm going to take someone's funeral. And one day, someone's going to take mine. You see, death comes to us all. But if you've ever been to a funeral, you'll know that feeling, won't you? The feeling that death is just so unjust, so wrong, even unnatural. Something deep in us says, I knew this was going to happen. Like everyone's been telling me, you can't avoid death and taxes. It was going to come my way. But here we are, and it just feels so wrong. This isn't the way it's meant to be. 
And that's what Genesis says. Our world is not the way it's meant to be. You see, in Genesis 1, God created this world and he created it to be good. A world in which we as God's people lived in in his kingdom with, with God as our king and loving father. It was a world full of blessing, a world full of life. A world where there was no death, no disaster, no depression, no disease. That's the way it was meant to be. Don't we long for a world like that? But then in Genesis 3, we, humanity, we broke faith with God. We didn't want life without God. We rejected His rule as our loving King. We demanded, no, that I want to be the master of my fate. I want to be the captain of my soul. In one sense, it's almost as if we divorced God. We wanted a life without Him. And so what did God do? He, in many ways, gave us exactly what we wanted. You want a life without me? Have a life without me. He disowned us as his people, banished us from his kingdom, stopped being our king and started being our judge. A world full of blessing became a world under a curse. A world full of life became this world. A world where no matter how much we try to run from it, death is always at the door. And in Genesis 4-11, to sin it spread throughout humanity like a deadly virus infecting every part of our world. Death spread everywhere. We just can't escape it. It climaxes in God judging this world through a great flood, almost as if to hit the reset button. But God gives us a second chance that we didn't deserve. He he started over with Noah, as it were. It's remarkable, isn't it? Praise God that our greatest sin cannot stop His greatest story. But now... In chapter 11, verse 10, it's as if the whole story just hits the pause button. It's as if from Genesis 1 all the way until this very verse, we've been looking at the story of God as as if we're watching things on Google Earth. God's big plan for his whole world. But now we, we zoom all the way into street view, as it were, and we find ourselves on one suburban street looking at the house of one ordinary man. His name is Terah, and he has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And God calls this family, just like he called Adam, to be fruitful and multiply, to bear children, to extend God's life in the world, to be that force of life in a world full of death. But I wonder if you heard the problem. Look at chapter 11, verse 29. Abram and Nahor married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishka. Now hear this, right? Now Sarai was childless, because she is not able to conceive. Can you see the problem here, right? God wants Abram to be fruitful, to, be, to multiply, to fill the earth, to extend life in this world. But Sarai is infertile. She can't do that. She can't bear children. If she can't bear children, how will God fulfill his plan? How will he extend his kingdom? How will he bless the world? How will he extend life? If in this verse, it at least looks like death has the final word. You know, I could never imagine the pain of childlessness. 
that pain of, of grieving a child you've never held, of, of losing a child you've never known. I suspect what makes childlessness even more painful is its deafening finality. And especially in an ancient time like this in Genesis 11, there was literally nothing you could do. You see, here in Genesis 11, God's plans for this world, God's life in this world, it stopped in its tracks, right? By a problem so final, so deafening, that there is literally nothing that anyone can do. Or so we think. Because you see, into that promise, into that problem, as it were, in verses 1 to 3, God speaks a promise. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12, God promises to restore this world to everything it was meant to be. He he says, no, even though there's death here, I'm going to give life to this whole world. And guess what? I'm going to do it through you, through an old man and his childless wife. It's crazy when you think about it. For a promise this great, a plan this important, God doesn't choose a powerful king. He chooses an insignificant stranger. He chooses someone like you and me. It's as if this world-class playwright says to the work experience kid, we're going to restart this whole play, the greatest drama in this world, and we're going to start it with you. And the work experience kid just looks up and says, huh? And you see, right throughout the Bible, we see this pattern at work. God making significant promises to insignificant people. God making significant promises to insignificant people. Just look at chapter 12, verse 1. You'll see that promise there. The Lord had said to Abram. And you see, when you see those words, immediately we think of the first time that God spoke. When he spoke something out of nothing. When he spoke light out of darkness, life out of death. And we wonder, will he do it again? Will he speak life into this barren womb? Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. Can you see what the Lord's doing? He's calling Abram to leave everything he knows. Everything that makes him who he is. There's still many cultures in the world like this today. People in the ancient Near East, in many ways similar to, very similar to, First Nations Australians here in our country, they have this deep connection with the land. And for them, the land, it was their home. It defined who they were. But the Lord says, leave your land. He also says, leave your people. Now, this is a little bit closer to home for me. Because for many cultures like mine, our family defines who we are. Even when we marry, I see this all the time, as I said, 14 weddings in three years, I see them. When these couples marry, it's as if there's an unbreakable bond with their parents still that seems to last everything. Maybe it's too strong a bond, possibly. And just like for many of us, Abram would not have been able to even conceive of life outside of his parents. He wouldn't have been able to imagine life without his family. But the Lord says, no, leave them as well. Leave everything you know for something so much better. For a promise so good that no sacrifice can be too great. No, I'm going to restore this world. I'm going to fix everything wrong with this world. I'm going to make it everything it was ever meant to be. And guess what? 
I'm starting with you. I'm starting with you. God chooses this one man to be the start of a whole new world. A world where once again God's people will live in God's land with him as their king. Can you imagine just how shocking it would be to hear that God would choose you to be the first man of a new world? But he does. And in verses 2 to 3, the Lord makes a threefold promise that I want you to notice it point for point reverses everything wrong with the world at that time and everything wrong with the world today. Let's look at them quickly. Number one, he begins with a promise of land. Remember what's happened. God created Adam and put him in the garden as the realm of his kingdom, to a world to rule and enjoy. But Adam's sin cast him out of the garden. God banished him from his land, as it were. But look at the promise there in verse 1. I'll bring you to the land I'll show you. He's, it's as if he's saying, leave your home for a much better home. Leave your land for a far greater land. See, Abram was a nomad. He was always on the move. But God promises this traveler, no, no, I'm going to bring you to a land which you can finally call your home. You know that feeling, don't you, when you're traveling and you finally get home and you just take a shower, slump down in bed and go, I'm home. One day, there will be a place like that for all of us. I was talking to one of the international students at my church, a guy called Sam. He's grown up everywhere. He's got that accent that you know that only comes from a kid who's been at international school, right? Like slightly American, but not quite. He's lived in Shanghai, Beijing, London, Abu Dhabi, Singapore, Melbourne. And he says, I just want to settle down and call somewhere home. God promises Abram, one day that'll be yours. I'll give you a land which will be a whole new Eden. Gosh, it'll be even better. It'll be a restored kingdom. Secondly, he promises Abram many children. Remember that God commanded Adam and Eve, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Their job was to extend God's rule in the world by bearing children, by extending life in a world that's full of death. But the problem, Sarai is infertile. She's childless. She's physically unable to, bear, to be fruitful. How in the world will she give birth to a child? Let alone, in verse 2, to a great nation. Well, I want you to see in just three chapters, God's going to promise Abram and his childless wife as many children as there are stars in the sky. I just want you to think about that for a moment, right? If a doctor made that promise to a childless woman. That would be so cruel, wouldn't it? If you were struggling with infertility and you went to see your doctor and your doctor said, don't worry, I'm promising you that you're going to have children beyond number. It would be heartless. Because no one can promise that. No man can promise that. But God says, no, I am no man. I am the God who spoke life out of death, light out of darkness, something out of nothing, creation out of the abyss. So you bet, you bet that I can speak life into a lifeless womb. When we think about God's promises, it's easy to doubt, isn't it? 
How in the world could God make a promise like that? How in the world could He promise to forgive my sin? How in the world could He promise to clear my conscience, to wash away my guilt? Gosh, if any man, every woman, any human said that to you, that would be so cruel, wouldn't it? Because no one can make that promise. No one can give you salvation. But God says, I am no man. No, I am the God of life, so you bet that I can remove your guilt, your fear, your shame. You bet that I can forgive your every sin. God promises that this barren woman, no, not only will she bear a child, she'll be the mother of a great nation with children as numerous as the stars in the night sky. I will restore you to your place as my people. And thirdly, he promises to restore his rule as their king. In verse 2, what does he say? I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. Once again, humanity will be God's people. will reflect his glory. will share his glory. It's as if we'll be clean mirrors of that glory will be pieced back together. This whole world will look like Abram's children and they'll see a reflection of God's goodness and glory in the world. Finally, we'll represent our God. People will look at you and say, ah, yes, you remind me of someone. You remind me of God. And anyone who blesses them, God will bless. Anyone who curses them, God will curse. They'll be his representatives in the world. And once again, God will be their king. You grasp the magnitude of this promise. It's, it's all through this one insignificant man, this one childless woman, that God in verse 3 says, I'm going to bless all the peoples on earth. Abram, now he's just the beginning. Last night, uh, when I was settling in to go to bed, I went on Instagram and saw uh, the Insta story of one of the couples at my church. And this couple, they're a very cute couple. They're getting married next year. Yay, another wedding. Uh, and their, their, their hobby is they like making, I don't know if you guys do this, but for a, for a dating couple, I find this weird. They like making model fighter jets, right? Like those really finicky ones where they paint things and piece them and glue them together. I have no patience for it at all. And we all know if you've seen their plastic model jet, it's amazing the detail, the color. But we all know that the model is never really the point. It's never the real thing. The model points to a greater reality, to the real life-size, battle-ready F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. That's the point, right? And it's as if Abram's children here, Abram himself, is that plastic model plane. Amazing in his own right, but pointing to something far greater, something far more substantial, far more real. God's plan for the whole world. It is why your mission as a church, believe it or not, is not just to love Jesus or love each other. It is to love the whole world. It's not enough to think about each other or even our city or even our nation. No, our mission as God's people must be as great as God's promise. Because it's a promise not just for one people. It's a promise for the whole world. I find it remarkable, actually, when I read this passage. Just absolutely amazing, right? If you get what's going on in Genesis 1 to 11, what happens in Genesis 12 will just blow your mind. Because when you see everything from Genesis 1 to 11, you sort of think, why does God go through all of this? 
Why does he even bother? Isn't it remarkable that God doesn't give up on our world? Isn't it remarkable that God doesn't give up on you or me? You know, if I were God, there's a way to start a sentence. If I were God, sorry to say, I honestly don't care. I wouldn't bother. Why save an undeserving and ungrateful people? Why give a second chance to a recalcitrant and stubborn humanity? I mean, if I'm God, I'm well within my rights to end the story, pull the plug. The Bible is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's it. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Just stop and think about that for a moment. For all our guilt, for all our shame, for all our fear, God doesn't give up on us. God doesn't give up on you. And you can bet your bottom dollar that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. He promised Abram that he'd restore this world, save us from sin and death. He promised Abram that he would give humanity a new start. He promised that he'd be salvation for this world, that death would be no more, and that one day we would be in perfect relationship with God and each other. That's what he promised. Well, I want you to know he's kept that promise and he's kept it in Jesus. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, the Apostle Paul says that every one of God's promises is yes in Jesus. That the promise that he's made to Abram is the promise that he's kept in Jesus. God made his promise to one man. God's fulfilled his promise through one man. The Old Testament is the story of a promise made, and the New Testament is the story of that promise kept. You see, people might not be reliable, but God is. People will let you down, but God never will. People's promises might be empty. No, God's promises are solid and sure. You might never trust another person's word in your life, but I want you to know that you can bet your life on the promises of God. God promises to restore his people to his kingdom. And can I say, this will be a world where God is our father and our king. And he promises to start it all with just one man. Abram, a pilgrim, a traveler, a wanderer. Let me ask, do you think of yourself as a naturally trusting person? I think I'm a pretty trusting person, I think. If someone makes a promise to you, is your natural disposition to go, oh yeah, I'll trust it? You might, let, let, let thought experiment. If Shane made you a promise, Okay, don't need to finish that question. But if Megan made you a promise, right, yeah, you would trust her, wouldn't you? I would also trust Shane with some things. Because a promise is only as reliable as the promise maker. There's a reflection. If God is the promise maker, I want you to know this is a promise that you can trust. And it's exactly what Abram does. He has faith. That's what it means. He has faith in God's promise. Did you notice he doesn't know where he's going? But he knows whom he trusts. He puts his faith not just in the promise, he puts his faith in the promise maker. If you're not a Christian, it's so good to have you here as you think and hear about what it means to follow Jesus. 
And it's very common for people to think that that word faith, when Christians use it, is nothing more than the blind belief in a set of unprovable assertions. You, you might think that when we say faith, we're asking to leave your brain at the door. But I want you to see that faith isn't blind to facts. No, faith has its eyes wide open. Because faith means personally trusting the promises of God. Personally trusting the promises of God. I actually, uh, this was in my notes, and I, I, I had said this to a number of people beforehand when they asked me what faith is, and I say, I've got a friend in Brisbane, and his name is Mikey. And if Mikey randomly called me and said, hey, Adam, I can't tell you why, but can you please get on a plane, come to Brisbane tomorrow? And I said, why? I, I can't tell you why right now, but just trust me. I'd do it. I'd do it. I'd buy the probably $700 flight at that time, but I'd go. I'd go. Mikey, in that moment, he's not giving me any rational reason why I should get on that plane, but he doesn't need to. Well, it's not about why. It's about who. That's what biblical faith is, right? I might not know why he's asking me to go, but I know who's asking me to go, and I have faith in him. Nerdy way of saying it. Often people go, Adam, are you saying that faith is not rational? And I'm saying, no, faith is, if I can make up a word, supra-rational. It includes rationality, but it's so much more than that. If you're in a relationship, your husband or wife says, trust me, have faith in me. You don't, say, you don't say to him or her, tell me why I should. You'd be on the couch that night. No, no, you trust them. And that's what faith is. See, Abram doesn't know where he's going, but he knows who's calling him. He has faith in that trustworthy God. He sets out as a pilgrim led by promise. Uh, you might not know this, but when Abram leaves his home, he's 75 years old. And he's leaving a dad who's 145 years old. A father who in 60 years' time will die. And Abram will never see him again. In my church in Melbourne, and I don't know, maybe in your church here as well, there are some people who have left their parents all to follow Jesus. And if that's you, you understand this sacrifice far more than I ever will. Abram is a model of faith. And so are you. And if that's you, I praise God for you. In verse 5, Abram takes everything he owns. He leaves everything he knows, led only by the promises of his God. In verse 6, he arrives at the great tree of Moreh at Shechem, and God shows him before his eyes, this is the land that you're going to one day enjoy. And so Abram, what does he do? He builds two altars, one in Shechem and the other between Bethel and Ai. It's as if Abram goes and is planting a flag in the ground and saying, this land belongs to God. And this passage ends with Abram continuing his journey through the promised land all the way to the desert region of the Negev. And wherever he goes, he sees the land that God has promised. The land that will one day be his to live in, to dwell in, to rest in forever. Abram is a pilgrim led by promise. He trusts the promise that one day God will bring him home. I want you to imagine for a moment a, a young family who's building their new home, their new house. It's off the plan. And they bring their kids along to watch the moment that the foundations get laid. The father brings his kid to watch the cement being poured and he gets them to take a stick and to write their names in the cement. 
almost as if to claim their future home. And he promises these kids, hey kids, for the next few months, we're not going to have a permanent home to live in. We're going to be traveling around, temp accommodation to temporary accommodation. But don't worry. Look at the foundations. Look at your initials. Look at your name in that wet cement. No, one day, in actually a year from now, this house is going to be complete and I'm going to bring you home. And for the next few months, the family does just that. They move from house to house and the children never unpack their belongings for longer than a week. They hate it. When can we just go home? I just want to settle down. And they stop trusting their dad. They go, he lied to us. He took us to some stranger's house. He just saw the tradies pouring cement as they hear write your names in that. But no, they trust their dad in the end. They trust their dad that he'll bring them home. They trust his promise of a future home, the home that is shown them, the home whose foundations bear their name. And just like these children trust their dad, I want you to see that Abram trusts the Lord. Hear what Hebrews 11, 8-10 says. By faith, Abram, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, get this, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And here he is, right? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. It's beautiful. Sorry to talk so much about weddings. It's just my life right now. But if you think about it, isn't that what happens when you get married? Two people stand next to each other. Literally, this happened 48 hours ago. I, Joseph, Lin Chun Lee, take you, Naomi, you, one Yin, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise. And then Naomi says, really? Prove it. Now she's going to live every day of her life trusting his promise, even though he hasn't really proved it at all yet. It's just a word but a powerful word. And here, God has made a promise for you and me. And you might say, here's a wonderful thing, we can go to God, prove it. And God says, look at my son. Look at the cross. If you want proof of my promise, I have given you my life. You see, friends, in this chapter, Abram is a model of faith for us all. He shows us that the only response to God's promise is to trust and obey. God promises to forgive our every sin through Jesus. He promises to save us from death through Jesus. He promises to restore this world through Jesus. He promises to give us a clean slate, a fresh start, a new life. And all we have to do is exactly what what Abram did, to trust God's word and to live by his promise. So will we obey as Abram obeyed? Will we go as Abram went? Will it be said of us that like Abram, we obeyed God and left all we had with nothing in our hands but the promises of our God? Will we live as pilgrims by that promise? 
Will we resolve to be never truly at home in this world, never too complacent with our jobs, never too, too comfortable with our families, never too content with our security? Will we be willing to go wherever God leads, ready to go whenever God calls, eager to sacrifice whatever God wills? We will only ever live as pilgrims if we, if we truly live by God's promise. Abram believed that God would create a great nation out of a lifeless womb. That he would give this nomad a land to finally call a home. That he'd restore and bless every nation in this world. He believed it so much, so deeply, so genuinely, that he was willing to leave everything he ever had. Because he trusted this promise. I want you to know that the God who spoke this world into existence has made a rock-solid, iron-clad, blood-sealed promise to you. And he promises to restore this world through Jesus. And he calls us to follow Jesus wherever he may send us. The only question remaining is this. Will you trust him? And will you obey him? Let me pray. Faithful God, thank you for honouring your every promise to restore this world through your Son. To give this world a fresh start. Gosh, to give us the fresh start we need. And when we're tempted to despair, when we see our own sin and think that we, you couldn't possibly give us that fresh start, that salvation, that forgiveness. No, help us trust your every promise. Teach us to obey your every word all through Jesus' strength. Amen. Well, friends, we've just heard in Genesis 12, haven't we, that God promises to restore this world to everything it was meant to be. And he made that promise to Abram. But I want you to notice there, he doesn't just make the promise to Abram himself. No, in Genesis 17, just five chapters later, this is what God says. I will establish my covenant, that is my promise, as an everlasting covenant or relationship between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. To be your God. And here it is, notice this, to be the God of your descendants after you. Okay, can you see that this promise that God makes, it's not just made to you and me or individuals. No, it's made to all people and that includes our children. It is why Abram circumcised every male in his family, both old and young, as an outward sign of that covenant, as a visible proof of that promise. In fact, in Genesis 17, it didn't matter whether you were eight, eight days old or 80 years old. It didn't even matter whether you had a personal faith. No, every man, old and young, was circumcised as a way of outwardly, visibly, and permanently symbolizing God's faithful promises. And the same is true with baptism today. In Colossians 2.11, we read that in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And you might wonder, when exactly was I circumcised? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. You see, friends, just as circumcision was the sign of God's covenant in the Old Testament, baptism is the proof of God's promise in the New. What circumcision was to Israel, 
Baptism is for us. The promise, as we saw, that God made to Abram and that was sealed by circumcision is the very same promise that he's kept in Jesus and is now sealed in baptism. Just as circumcision was a gift to both young and old, baptism is a gift not only to Christian adults but to our children as well. It's why in Acts 2 the Apostle Peter declares this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now note, the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. You see, circumcision, it didn't save Abram or his children. No, God did. And baptism doesn't save our children. Jesus does. But just like circumcision, baptism is a sign of God's saving work. It's an outward, visible, and permanent reminder of what God has decisively done in His Son. I love it. In one sense, baptism sits entirely outside of ourselves. Baptism is totally not dependent on my fleeting and fickle faith. Well, the truth is, if baptism was all about my personal faith, I would be getting baptized every week. It would offer very little assurance because my faith, and I suspect yours as well, waxes and wanes with each and every day. No, we need a sign more sure and steadfast than our fickle and fading faith. We need a sign of God's steadfast, unchanging love and faithfulness. Baptism is not a celebration of our decision. It's a celebration of God's promise. It's not a sign of our faith. It's a sign of God's faithfulness. It's not a symbol of what we have done for God. It's a symbol of what God has done for us. Baptism, praise the Lord, is not about us. It's all about Him. And so today, Mikey and Heidi bring Talitha to be baptized as the daughter of believing parents. And so the promise of the gospel is for her. And even though she might not have a personal faith of her own, as was the case for the children of Israel, we are baptizing her this day because God is faithful to her. This day sits entirely outside of herself and praise God for that. For later on, when she grows up as an adult, when her faith is weak and on the days when her trust in the Lord wavers, she can remember that in her baptism, while she was faithless, God was faithful. While she was weak, God was strong. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me pray. Merciful God, for the sake of your Son, grant that Talitha, whom we baptize in water, may be saved through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. May she die to sin and rise again to righteousness. May your Spirit live and work in her, that she may be yours forever. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died and rose again for us. Amen.